Hello, and welcome to PW's LitCast, a podcast from Publishers Weekly. Each episode, we speak with authors of new fiction and nonfiction. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor of Publishers Weekly, and today I'm speaking with Rick Hall, whose memoir is The Man from Muscle Shoals, My Journey from Shame to Fame by Heritage Builders Publishing, who is the sponsor of today's podcast. Hello, Rick. Thanks for joining us. Hey there. How are you? Very well. So what made you decide to write this book and write it now? I mean, you've been in the business for quite a few decades. <laughs> yeah, don't give away my age here. You know? <laughs> Be careful. No, it's, uh, I wrote the book. It started out as a, uh, a little daily notepad, and uh, as I would bring in artists like a Wilson Pickett or Aretha Franklin. Uh, I would make notes that uh, Thursday, July the 3rd, I'll be doing... Wilson Pickett, and we're looking forward to that, and blah, blah, blah. And Wilson and Jerry Wexler's coming down from New York to be with me and help me produce these things. And so uh, it, it, it became so large, uh, and I had so much writing to do. Someone said to me, why don't you write a book, you know, about the, these people? And I said, well, that's a great idea. And so I started writing the book 10 years ago. So it took me 10 years to write the book. Uh, I'm a slow writer, so, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's not unusual, especially for uh, someone who's had the experience that you have. And so you are known, I'm just going to give a little intro to our our listeners. Uh, So the owner of the famous and influential Fame Studios in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, and just to give those listeners some background, could you just describe to us first the town of Muscle Shoals? It's not some place where you would think that you would have such a recording studio. I mean, at the time, there was uh, Memphis, it was up in Detroit, and of course, there was New York. Tell us a little bit about the town of Muscle Shoals. Well, the town of Muscle Shoals is, uh, is a population of about probably 10,000 people now. It had 8,000 people when I Again, the recording studio, and it's uh, on the banks of the Tennessee River. It's in the northern portion, northeastern portion, northwestern portion of uh, Colbert County, and it's uh, in a remote area, as you might imagine. But uh, I, I came here because I wanted to do pop music and black music, and so I was, I was, I was having a lot of successes with country music in Nashville and Memphis, Tennessee and places like that. So I decided to build my own recording studio and do what I wanted to do, which was black music, because at that time, you know, Leonard Chess and Atlantic Records were getting very famous with uh, and selling a lot of records on uh, on their product, which was the Tams, uh, you know, Wilson Pickett, Clarence Carter, Aretha Franklin, Eddie James, and so forth and so on. So I decided to that I wanted to move up a notch and not do country music anymore. I was with a country band, so I started a new band, a rock and roll band, and moved to Muscle Shoals and built the studio and went on my own. So I've done quite well. Then. But the, the studio, it's uh, called Fame, F-A-M-E, uh, recording studios. It's the oldest studio in the world owned by the same people 
uh, and still in operation and doing doing well. We were we're still doing battle every day. <laughs> You're still recording now, then. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah, we're still recording. So you started the studio in the 1950s, if I'm not mistaken. Well, the studio, this studio that I'm in now, is Fame Recording Studio. It's it was a new building. Uh, I, I I went into old buildings and uh, put egg cartons on the wall and all that mm-hmm. on the early er, in the early years, and then I became. Uh, so well known and producing so many hit records that I decided to build a new studio. So I built a new studio and we've added on from time to time. Now we have two recording studios under the same roof. And uh, we have, uh, uh, we've got four publishing companies, two recording studios. And from time to time, I've owned record labels over the years that were distributed by Capital, Atlantic Records, United Artists, and so forth. Mm. We hear a lot about the, uh, we would talk about the Muscle Shoals sound. Tell us about that sound, and, and how, how did you develop it? What, was it the basically just the, 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 uh, the musicians and singers you had in, or was it a certain kind of sound that you had in the production? That's a good question, by the way. In the early years, we had, uh, everybody had a band. I mean, we, I had the Fairlanes, and I played with them, and Billy Sherrill, and so forth. And we were songwriters, and then we made our livelihood through the week playing dances. Mm. And we'd play for the University of Alabama, for Ole Miss, and for Auburn, and so forth, around the southeastern market. And uh, so I picked out the best musicians out of each band and signed them to a recording contract, and and they were exclusive with me. And so we started out there, and we had You Better Move On with Arthur Alexander, of course. Then we had Steal Away with Jimmy Hughes, which was a big hit. Mm-hmm. And, of course, before that, I had I, I had become a... A, a fairly good songwriter. I had records by Roy Orbison, Brenda Lee, mm. and I made quite a bit of money. And so I just I had a little fund saved up, and so I built my own studio and and I did it myself. And and uh, here we are today. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. So uh, you were born in Mississippi and raised in Alabama. And in the book, yes. you talk about your youth. And um, there was one one uh, poignant part. You discussed your mother leaving the family and, and how that impacted you. Could, could you tell us a little bit about that and the life you went on from there? And I'm also talking because your journey is called From Shame to Fame. Um, yes, I'm not too sure where the shame had come in, but definitely the fame. Well, the shame came in, uh, and and that's that's a question I'm I'm frequently asked. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's my mother left me when I was five years old. Me and my sister, and and she, I was five, and she was four, a year younger, and uh, she went to work in a red light district in the Muscle Shoals area, mm. and of course. Uh, uh, my father and her parted ways, and my dad raised me and my sister. Wow. And he was a sawmiller. We were from squalid conditions. We were 
Uh, he didn't have decent work. He worked at a sawmill, and I was a sharecrop farmer part of the time. And he uh, he was making 35 cents an hour, which was 10 cents an hour more than anybody else was making. And he thought that was big money, but of course it was in those days. Mm-hmm. And so uh, uh, we had we 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 were I mean we extremely poor. Uh, we were. I mean, nobody black or white has ever been poorer than Rick Hall. Mm. And it's gone through the changes of life that I have and made it in the music business or any other business for that matter. But uh, but we, uh, I learned to save my money. I learned to work hard. And my theory was always that if you work 16 hours a day and I work eight hours, if, if you work, I work eight hours a day and you if you work eight hours a day, I'll get it right. Uh, and I work 16 hours a day. In a matter of a year, I'll eat your lunch. So I, I always believed that the work ethics was a very important part of the music business. And so I, I worked really hard. And we worked seven days a week without a vacation for the first 10 years, probably. And uh, it was it was tough times. I mean, really tough. And then eventually, uh, all that hard work and the saving paid off. And uh, when you were a teenager, I believe it was, uh, that's when you bought your first Gibson guitar. Tell us about that guitar, how you settled on it, and when it was you bought it. Yeah, I bought that guitar in probably 1951, and I bought it in Chicago uh, after I grew up to be a teeny bopper. Mm-hmm. I went to Chicago and went to work there, and I bought that guitar. And, of course, the guitar was, uh, I wrote a lot of hit songs on it. And, of course, Wilson Pickett played it on some of his records. And uh, Otis Redding played it on some of his hit records. Uh, you Left the Water Running, which is a song that I wrote, co-wrote. And... Uh, so it's it's had a long history. It sits in my in the corner of my building now, in the recording studio, uh, with the name on it, Rick Hall's Axe. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> so, what was the style of the guitar? Which Gibson was it? It was the older first first made uh, Gibson guitars, uh, and it it had a sunburst finish, mm-hmm. and it was the. We call it the Sunburst guitar. It was the cheapest guitar they made, mm. and uh, that's why I could afford it. So I bought it in Chicago, and I was working there uh, in Chicago, and so uh, that's how I met Leonard Chess. And consequently, later on, we were recording uh, together. We had we had uh, hit records on Eddie James and Laura Lee and several other acts that, uh, mm-hmm. that he had signed to his label in Chicago. You've mentioned Wilson Pickett quite a bit, and he's in your book. I recorded there. Um, obviously, you wrote songs for him. But there was one story that I liked in particular. It was kind of a melding of two different kinds of music and two different mm-hmm. musicians. And that was um, about Dwayne Allman of the Allman Brothers and Wilson Pickett. And maybe it was a jam session of recording the two made where uh, I think Wilson Pickett misunderstood a word in the title of the song. Could you tell us about that? Yes, he... Uh Wetzel was in the building, and uh, he was 
sitting with me in the control room. And uh, so I asked Wilson, I said, uh, Wilson, are you sing, singing? The song was a Paul McCartney song called Hey Jude, which was a, a big record. And we were covering it. And it was Dwayne's idea to cut the record. Uh, and I thought he was crazy. I said, well, I mean, the record is already out on the Beatles and it'll be number one. It'll stay there for at least five or six weeks at number one position. Mm -hmm. And so I think we're crazy. Uh, people will think we're crazy to uh, cover the Beatles on one of their records. And, of course, Dwayne shouted me down and said, no, no, Rick. He said, uh, uh, they'll think we're geniuses. Those guys down there in Muscle Shows are geniuses. They, 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 they covered the Beatles and, and had a big hit on the record. And I said, well, so he was singing, uh, and, and I noticed that he was singing, uh, Wilson was singing, Hey Jew, J-E-W. And I said, no, no. He said, well, I said, oh, are you singing Hey Jew or Hey Jude? And Pickett said, uh, no, I'm singing Hey Jew. Isn't that, isn't that right? And I said, no, no, it's absolutely not right. I mean, we've we, we got to change that. And so I, I changed him over, and he was he started. But I think he still sang Hey Jew on, on some parts of the record, and I, I didn't I missed those. So tell us about your work with Aretha Franklin and Etta James. Well, Aretha came because she wasn't selling any records on CBS Records, and so they dropped her after five years. Her contract was up, and they dropped her, and uh, Wexler called me and said, well, Rick, uh, the people in Memphis don't want me to get Jim Stewart of uh, Stacks in Memphis, where I've been cutting some of, the some of my records on Wilson Pickett, and uh, he don't want me to come back anymore because he feels like I'm ripping off his, his sound and his musicians. And so he, for whatever reason, he don't want me to come back there anymore. So I would like to bring Aretha down to your studio. And I said, hallelujah, you know. <laughs> so he said, uh, what do you think of that? And I said, I think it's incredible. So he brought her down. And, of course, the first record we produced on her in my studio, Fame Studios, was a, a number one record. And they flipped it over, then the other side became number one. And that record was, of course, I Ain't Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You. And the B-side, or if there was a B-side, was uh, uh, Do Right Woman, Do Right Man. So we cut her very first hit record and cut a lot of other first hit records. And, of course, Etta, Leonard Chess, after I had a breakup with uh, a dispute with Wexler, and left Atlantic Records, and I went to Chicago and met with Leonard and said, look, I want to do an act for you. So he said, who would you like to do? And I said, who do you have available? He said, uh, Etta James, uh, would be. I, I, I'd like you to do a hit record on her. And he said, do you think you can cut a hit on her? And I said, I think I can if I can find the right song. And he said, well, Rick, I thought that's what we paid producers for was to find the right song and produce hit records. And 
Isn't that right? And I said, yes, it is right. So I never use that uh, that line again. Mr. Hall, it sounds like a really rich book you have, uh, lots of history, and I wish you all luck with it. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, sir. I appreciate you calling me. And thank you, listeners, for listening in, and I hope you'll join us for the next LitCast. <laughs>